Hi, welcome back to the People, Analytics, and Future of Word podcast. And I'm here with Ian Cook of Azir and Brad Benson of Aptology. Gentlemen, how are you two doing? Brad, specifically, you know, we haven't talked before on this forum and really excited about what you're doing. So if you would introduce yourself and uh, we'll uh, learn a little about, about what you're doing and have a chat about it. Yeah, so my, Al, thanks for having us on this call. Uh, my name is Brad Benson. I'm head of strategy at Aptology. And in a nutshell, Aptology is a AI-driven behavioral intelligence platform. And what that means is we're able to actually figure out what are the traits that actually differentiate top performance from everyone else at a highly predictable level. You can use that to go ahead and hire successfully, develop people, and then drive internal mobility, which is hugely important to drive the organization and longitudinal performance in a company. And the reason why we got into this is because of the fact that we saw a lot of trends going on in the marketplace through time. I've looked through them all. Best of breed in the 80s, ERP, Y2K gold rush in the 90s, back to best of breed in the 2000s with SaaS and everything else, and now back to single vendor quite a bit in the enterprise side. And then we're hitting best of breed again, basically, at this point in time. And AI is certainly driving a big part of that, along with analytics. But through all that time, one thing we saw that was challenging was the fact that if you went to HR tech conferences every year, you always saw succession planning at the top of the list. You saw attrition, you saw engagement. And the thing that I always thought about with that was the fact that we were focusing a lot on efficiency when we looked at transactional automation, going back to the early days, you're actually automating manual transactions. And then later on, you continue to refine those automations and the efficiencies in there. But the problem is, I think we lost sight of the quality of hire in this whole process and driving business outcomes. And it's not just the outcomes for HR, it's the outcomes for sales, for marketing, for engineering, for customer success, for finance, and all the other operational domains within a company. And so when we looked at it, we really said, God, I think a lot of those issues are symptoms of a problem, which is really performance fit in a role, basically. And how do you find the people that actually have their strengths playing to that role, how do they know how to get in the right role uh, so that they're actually going to be in a job they're going to enjoy and, and basically prosper in? And so we really wanted to come at this in both angles. One was, how do you take care of the employee? How do I not waste my time? You know, companies have the waste already built into their model, right? They already have the inefficiency built into their financials. Um, but an employee does not. They don't really have that built in to say, I'm already calibrating a bunch of misses on my hiring plans, and I'm going to spend 12 or 18 months in a job trying to slug through it blaming myself and wondering why it's not working out. Whereas we can actually go ahead and identify where are your strengths and how do you play to the roles that you've been most successful in and vice versa. If you do that, the company wins at the same time. So everybody gets a win-win in that scenario. I avoid the jobs that I don't shouldn't be in. And the companies avoid all those misfires they have today. And if you look at sales, it's huge right now. You get 43% of reps making quota. I think if you look at that performance number, that's a pretty unsustainable and and horribly negative performance level you want to get to. And the reality is what we're able to do by flipping the table and saying what really differentiates top performance from everyone else, we can actually double their odds of tiring a top performance. So we're really about how do you flip the table? How do you make sure you're getting the right people in the role? And then, and then at the same time, you're not stuck in the position they are today, for instance, with sales, which is I'm just as likely to hire another low performer when I replace somebody. So I've got less than a coin flip odds of getting a good performer in the secondary state. Our goal is to flip that around so you can actually drive high performance in a company. That's the lifeblood, especially in sales of an organization. And at the same time, the employees get in the right role they want to be in, where they'll thrive and be successful. If you do that and you at the same time really drive, understand their aspirations 
and what the career opportunities are beyond that, which we can identify. Now you've gotten longitudinal success with an employee. They're more likely to stay. They're going to be happy in the role and engaged. The attrition goes down. The engagement goes up, basically. And at the same time, we can also drive diversity in those roles, too, to make sure you're really looking at the talent that you might be overlooking today because of unconscious bias. So we really saw that we could actually knock off a lot of those symptoms by going after the core issue, which is really fit in the role, basically, both short term in the first role you get into and then longer term in all the roles that come after that. Because employees right now, they're looking to career progress themselves along the way. And if you don't do it for them, they will progress themselves right out of your company. Absolutely and, right. Yeah. And, I, and, go ahead. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, there needs to be you know, some confidence that what they're doing now, both in their role and in terms of their development, is going to benefit them, not only the organization. And, you know, that actually leads into, Ian, what you all are doing at Vizier, because Brad, you were talking about engagement and some downstream outcomes. And I know, you know, Ian, you've been working on doing this linkage, you know, for years. So if you would introduce yourself and you know, a little bit about Vizier. And so uh, people, Ian Cook with, with Vizier, uh, spent my career kind of understanding how the people equation gets formed as Brad highlights so that people win and the business wins and, and looking at the different parts of that. But on Vizier's side, we've been studying this, this whole effectiveness question. I think, again, Brad puts it really nicely. Like we've been spending money on efficiency. Like how do I make the change of address transaction faster? And, and we've, we've kind of got to the end of that. There's not a lot more extra gain to be had. And what we've been working at and thinking about and helping clients with is the effectiveness question. Like, how do I help an under individual understand their effectiveness? How do I help HR business partners with people managers look at the effectiveness of an overall population? And, and it doesn't come from one place. It comes from a collection of places. And, and at the core of that is the person. What are they capable of? What do they know? Where do they fit? Um, recognizing, again, just especially with some of the labor market numbers that are out there, that choice is really huge. So getting that understanding of uh, fit, uh, future, allowing people to manage that for themselves is really important. So you know, at Vizier, we're looking at that, that big picture, understanding there's lots and lots of components that go into that picture. And our role is really to try and assemble that so that you can uh, get the answer in one place, running around, we're big advocates like Brad of the, the, the best in class and assembling best in class. Uh, and then if you if there's one place where that can hang together, then that gives you best in class with a simple interface to, to, to understand and use. And so that's a, that's a big part of the journey we're on with uh, you know partners like Aptology to say, get the right pieces of the puzzle together. You can still have all this fantastic capability with consumed through a single pane of glass. It's often how our customers decide it's like, I want all this power, but I want it through a single pane of glass. So I've been working out like what's the model and how do we create this single pane of glass? And again, engaging with fantastic organizations like Aptology to, to understand how do we get to that, the core of who the person is and really help them. And if yeah, I and, uh, Brad, you, you go ahead. I, I, have yeah, a, I have a question after this, but yes, please go ahead. What Ian said basically is, is talking about the ecosystem and certainly talking about the challenges for HR and picking solutions. You know, if you look at the problem, the way we look at the problem, you know, we're moving from efficiency into effectiveness, but part of that means you're also moving from a single domain like HR to many different operational domains coupled up with HR. 
And that means, you know, it's not about time to fill, it's about time to fulfill the promise of that role basically is more important, right? Now they get the right outcome. And to do that, that means you really have to understand what are the goals of both organizations? If it's sales and HR, how do I meet the operational viewpoint and the metrics to drive the business for sales? And at the same time, get the horizontal benefits of retention and diversity and engagement, and all the things you're looking for from HR. So how do you find that mutual outcome where both parties get what they need? And at the end of the day, that means you're driving down all the load that you have in HR for having to backfill a lot of jobs. Basically, there's so many, there's so much load that HR has right now that they aren't planning for because they're not planning. They're probably not budgeting for all the attrition backfills. They're probably budgeting for a lot of the the net ads basically along the way. And so to do that, you really have to look at that outcome from an operational side to go, what is it I'm trying to do to move the business? And that puts HR in a really difficult position because now you're saying they have to know every domain. They have to understand all the KPIs across those domains and how to make those things move and still drive the horizontal outcome. And that's a very tall task to have. And then on top of that, now we're in best of breed to you know, Ian's point. So how, do you, how are they gonna go ahead and even know which best of breed to buy? You know, what's mm -hmm. beyond the marketing, what's really gonna move the needle? And then on top of that, how do I even integrate those solutions together? I think that's one of the really powerful things about a solution, the single pane of glass like Ian talks about, which is, you know, if I have a BI solution on the front end and I can work backwards on the business outcomes and tie together all the solutions that give me the answers to the questions I need to answer to drive my talent decisions, that's where you drive the real outcome. And that's where you can actually see the congealing of best of breed coming together and taking some of that load off of HR from a purchasing standpoint. You know, show them the solution basically they can get to ahead of time. So they know it and pre-integrate that solution to make sure not dealing with that as an individual customer repeatedly across the marketplace. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Brad, because I want to step back to, to step forward. So if I'm a listener in HR, or if I'm a people leader, or just someone who's interested in how talent strategies are going to be formulated over the years ahead, uh, with this proliferation of data and systems that are housing this data, it invites the question, what is the data that's there? And is that data appropriate to help me answer the questions I want or need to know? There's this presumption that, oh, we have all these systems, there's a bunch of data, let's just throw it together and out will pop this magical answer. But we have to be very conscious about what data we're creating in the first place. So Brad, can you explain a little bit about the unique nature of the data that you're collecting and that you advocate be considered by leaders who want to transform a culture and empower their employees to develop themselves? Yeah, so you get some key information about your employees you already have in an HR system, you know, where they're working, who they're working for, when they were hired. Zicky, you've got a bunch of data out there that's in that system. But at the same time, you need to aggregate together, you know, we, we ingest also, what are the KPIs that drive your organization? If it's a sales organization, you're looking at revenue and quota and pipeline, a lot of different things that, that I really measure success by. That's how I define success in my organization. And you really have to marry both of those together to really figure out what truly differentiates your people from a top performer versus a bottom performer. So they all then take that, turn that around and apply that to hiring, to apply that to development, to apply that to internal mobility where your employees can go, now I can see the gaps I want to work on developing myself on, on the second and third role down the line. So you're really getting that flywheel going on internal mobility and moving them on and also letting them know, hey, Maybe this job you thought you want isn't the one you want because it's really not playing to your strengths. You'd like to have those caution signs along the way to direct yourself. And so the key for us is having that marriage of data across domains 
And then obviously beyond our solution, there's other data you want to have to make overall hiring decisions. It's not just what we have. And I think that's where Vizier really comes into play of marrying many different best of breed solutions together to answer those critical questions. And I think one thing that you mentioned that's really important here, Al, is the fact that you know when we saw the early analytic solutions, you had the Hyperions of the world and you had the business objects and you had the Cognos of the world. People didn't know what to do with that. They bought a tool and they're like, okay, I got this tool, throw a bunch of data in there and see what happens. Well, now the problem is you've left it to a hiring manager, somebody else to go, what matters? I don't know what matters. I got all this mountain of data in front of me and they're not gonna spend the time going through and figuring that out. Now Hyperion was an example, built some targeted solutions and financials and everything else to try to show a, a roadmap there. But I think you have to go ahead and marry the right data to answer the right questions and predefine that so people aren't having to do that on their own, just like you don't want them to have to integrate the solutions on their own either, right? Yeah. Uh, those are insurmountable tasks. Ian, I know you got some comments on that. <laughs> well, I got several comments. I'm gonna kind of start with just that that last point made by Brad that, that we've we actually see very much what you describe in practice, that the way that Vizier was was architected and the way we've gone to solving the analytics problem is actually to start with the business question. Because I think lots of people start with that. Oh, what data should I have and how do I use it versus when you start with the business question, like, what do I need to know? Why do I need to know it? If I, if I know it, why is it better than not knowing it? And actually go through that cycle. It, it then becomes a lot simpler to understand how to bring the data you need. And, and again, to a point that you always make out being clear, like, why are you bringing this data in? Is it for a legitimate purpose? Is it you know, within the sphere of um, you know, good ethics and, and being true to the business and the employees in equal measure. And you're doing it not just for the sake of having it, but actually because there's an end goal. Again, Brad highlights that I want to understand how people fit relative to how they perform. That's an important piece. Everybody, but lots of people I talk to that, you know, productivity is kind of out there in this sort of general conversation. But when you come down to focusing on it, there is no such thing as generic productivity. Hours is a really poor measure for it in terms of hours worked and nice they're billable hours. So you've got to get fine grained about, well, which pieces of productivity we're going to assess and then how do we understand good versus bad versus better versus what's possible. So thinking about the business challenge and how does HR solve for that before you get lost in all of the mess the data is, is key. And, and the BI tools led you to the data piece first, as opposed to business question first. Yeah, as you're as you're sharing, um, Ian and you know, Brad, I'm going to toss this over to you in a second because, you know, it's dawning on me. And my job here is to empathize to the extent possible, not only with you two, but with the listeners. And because everything that you're saying is making sense. And it's like, yes, we have to understand the business problem. However our ability to translate those business problems into HR uh, processes, into solutions that HR will either create or you know, stand up that you know, didn't exist before or be refined of an existing process. Uh, my question to you, Brad, is why is this not being done more? What are the barriers to having a more holistic, disciplined approach on how data is being used, how the employee experience is created, and in turn, talent strategies are more systematically formulated? Why is there not more rigor to this right now? What do you think needs to be done to solve that? 
I think one of the issues out there, if you look at the marketplaces and you can quote 40 billion or 50 billion for either CRM and sales tech or the same thing from the HMS side. And so if you look at the infomatic drawings of every vendor and every subspace, uh, they've got a daunting task to figure out even what do they implement on the, each domain side? What do I do for the sales tech or what do I do for HR tech? And and they're following that roadmap and they're going, I got to do all these things. These are the basic things you should do. Well, they're so busy with that. They, they aren't thinking about, but, but I'm, I want to enable my people in sales. I want to develop them. Do I have the right person in the role before I spend all that money? And so I think they haven't stopped to recognize that the basic metrics are showing them they're not performing at an optimal level. And then maybe they ought to reprioritize which things they're implementing, which things actually get the biggest bang for the buck right now. Is it doing a bunch of training for people you know, you know, horizontal way, basically, that don't have the right baseline behaviors that are going to drive success in that role and the right competencies, or is it getting the right people in there first and then layering on top of that? And so I think people are struggling to figure out what the right priority orders are, and they're following the roadmap in their particular domain. And they're just so busy with that, I think. And I think at the same time, I think they kind of are used to the idea of heavy lift implementations. They're used to the ERP implementation, it's a big monolithic thing, it's not agile. And so those things have this, oh my God, I don't have time for anything else in my job. And the reality is you don't need a lot of time to do some of the things we're talking about. You know, these can be four to six week projects to get started in an agile way, like you would do agile development. Agile development, you don't do the big waterfall projects anymore, you implement a giant system. You, you, you implement and learn and you basically keep on adding to that in an agile manner. And I think people aren't used to that agility because their past experience with solutions is so heavyweight and so enterprise. Yeah, yeah, and you, you, you take it from there because you know, when you say we, it's like you know, HR has been making sometimes decisions in a silo or with kind of ancillary input from the organization and there needs to be a more integrated approach arguably that includes operations and facilities and legal and, and IT, of course. So you know, Ian, what are your thoughts there? I think there's, there's two thoughts to, to kind of follow on from what Brad was saying. I think one is habit, which is, you know, the habit has been to drive efficiency. There, there has been an incredible amount of efficiency to drive from the 90s from, you know, I remember paper forms with carbon paper in between and you, you you ran it into the printer and produced three versions and you put them in the filing cabinet like i think about a SaaS on-premise hris sorry a SaaS hris right now like we've been going through that journey and so there's an element of like our habit is to think about efficiency so people are just waking up to the effect in this question and then the other is you know if that habit leads an assumption we see this frequently in kind of prospect calls like Somebody, somebody gets excited by the prospect of, of having the kind of analytics that they've always dreamed of. And then they take a deep breath. It's like, so how hard is this to implement is the question. You can tell that, you know, they've had one of those 12, 18 month, like all hands to the wheel implementation experiences in their past. And they're just not ready to go there again. Right. Um, right. And, and so it, it takes a bit of people to, to, to change that assumption and break the habit and go like, yeah, like modern, especially analytics technology doesn't implement that way. It's, it's iterative, it's, it's best done iterative. Whereas a transactional system, you, you're putting the data in, you're putting it in a table, you're kind of, you're locking it like gold into the secure storage mechanism. Analytics application like ours, we literally kill and publish the full data set every day. Right. So it doesn't matter if you get it wrong because it could last for 20 minutes and be gone. 
Right. We just rebuild it and rebuild it and rebuild it. So if you don't have that picture of the technology and what they do is like, well, if we put data in there and it's wrong, oh, we'll live with it forever. Like, yes, HRS world, sure. You put data into analytics technology, oh, if you want to kill it, it'll take us 20 minutes to put some new stuff in there. Like, right. And if you haven't had that experience, you're like, it's that easy. It's like, it's that easy. So I think it's habit and then assumptions about, you know, this is enterprise technology. It's going to be a big heavy lift. Oh, I'm too tired. So yeah. And everyone, to, to your point, Brad, as well, is like everyone has their own uh, perspective and ideas and priorities. And so I just want to call something out and get your take on it is that, you know, Brad, you're talking about this is going to affect hiring practices, this is going to affect internal mobility, it's going to affect, you know, workplace strategy. And so a lot of things, and these are formerly disparate disciplines or functions, sometimes within HR and outside of HR. So yeah, how, what are some of your ideas to bring in, and I'm going to use a word that I'm kind of entrenched in and talk about habit, is, is governance. Is it, you know, how do these decisions up front get made more thoughtfully? And how as soon as a purchase decision is made, how does the actual action happen? Because the last thing employees want is some you know, promise that, you know, it's going to get better and the organization not deliver. So, you know, Brad, your thoughts there around, you know, more systematic discipline governance and decision-making implementation and enhancement over time. Yeah. So I think it's the same agile approach. So if you think about it and thinking about starting, how do you just get started in a simple way? And so our focus is always about, don't worry about all the development stuff right away, focus on just the hiring piece. And that includes internal mobility, which is like, you know, get this in place, know what differentiates success, and then survey all your people in many different domains. We have an example of a company uh, where they're a supply chain automation company, which has done very well in COVID, obviously, with Amazon and everybody else selling uh, and delivering. And the key being that we recognize suddenly that their best source for talent was their engineering team, not the outside sales hires. And it was a faster route to teach people who were really technical, who understood the complexity of their solutions, how to sell them was to take technical salespeople and teach them their solution, how to get things done in their company. And so it's just like, and they're like, oh, it's easy to backfill engineers. It's hard to find great salespeople. So the key is just illuminating. You can just go ahead and survey everybody. And we don't charge for that. We want you to survey everybody. We want you to unlock these sourcing pools. We want you to unlock that internal mobility. But to do that doesn't take anything. There's no time and effort involved in that. And you can start up on the hiring side. And then you can learn how to how do I have governance and how do I approach hiring somebody from another team and, and unlocking that. But I think companies need to quickly move on that because right now, there's a lot of talk about marketplaces and internal marketplaces. And unfortunately, I think the biggest beneficiary of your internal marketplace is your competitor right now, basically. There's more friction to move internally in a lot of companies than there is to move out of your company to a competitor. And so I think really recognizing and acknowledging and promoting managers who do a good job of developing people and moving them on rather than those that kind of hoard and hide and kind of bury them to where they leave the company anyway. Um, I think you have to recognize the habits, the good habits of good management and fostering that facilitation of internal mobility. And that's something you can quickly learn how to do and and basically, and basically have some oversight on, but I think you have to kind of let it agilely build itself to some degree. I think you have to trust people in all parts of the organization versus command and control and let them figure it out to some degree, but get the flywheel going. 
you know, get them using this. I think they, they're tired of losing talent. I think they're tired of getting the wrong talent a lot of times. Um, but the problem is they're also part of the problem. They want their talent fast. And so they still want the efficiency and the speed of getting people hired, not thinking about the connection to the ramifications of having the wrong people longer term and having to backfill again. So, so that's my short answer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I have a, a book behind me by Thomas uh, Chamorro per music that echoes what you were saying in that we as organizational leaders need to do a much better job identifying what a excellent leader looks like. You know, what are the behaviors? What are the habits? Uh, and have mechanisms to assess and develop those. And a lot of times it's there's been a miss uh, between what's been incentivized and what has been uh, some of the learning experiences and what actually works. And I know, Ian, you've spent your career investigating what actually works and what, what's happening. So what are the thoughts uh, that you have in um, that Brad just shared? Again, as always, a couple of things. I think what's becoming increasingly important for organizations to understand is the amount of data that is available and capturable and usable. It's become, I don't know, 10 times easier than it was back in the, the days. Like It's not necessarily different data. If we think about leadership, way back when, we put somebody through an assessment group. You know, you go away for a weekend, you're watched by five psychologists, they're they're ticking things off on their clipboards, they're getting together and having meetings. Like they're, you know, you're spending five to ten thousand dollars per person to do a really, really robust write-up on you know, where are they good, where are they strong. And, and we're doing that. Now that same, it's not necessarily exactly the same depth, but a sufficiently good picture can be made through technology literally in minutes. Like we've, mm -hmm. we've taken all that knowledge and we've built machine learning and, and assessment capability and, and understanding so that I can get a good working model of a person that they can understand and you can use. It's just that shared, you know, not just for me, not just for you kind of balance piece you, you can use and make available. And so you get past a lot of the challenges of the, of the, uh, I just say that the observed world was our managers hoarded talent. Like, is this person any good? Oh, no, no. Like, they're not ready to move yet. But I heard they're really good. Well, who told you that? <laughs> you know, just, and it's all about protecting talent. It's all that game that happens in terms of the politics. Whereas when you put it into data and you make it available and you make it standard and you make it something across the business, it, it illuminates the conversation for everybody and it illuminates the opportunity for so many more than it has in the past. So mm. like, and that's this, people often fear about putting data against people. And I think there is legitimate, con, I think fear is the wrong approach. I think there's legitimate concern. Like we have to make it so that it's, it's the person benefits to the same extent as a business, but the opportunities I see to, to really enable individuals to thrive and, and with that, the business from this digitization of that kind of knowledge are just, they're so profound that yeah. um, it, it, it's exciting you know, being part of it, uh, helping people understand how to access it is just, again, I just think it's a, it's a really 
spent a long time waiting for us to be here. So yeah. I'm excited, excited that it's coming. And, you know, all, all three of us have this uh, luxury or anguish of perspective that has been afforded us by time. So we've seen <laughs> when people say Cognos and Hyperion and business objects, I mean, we've, we've uh, we played with those tools and we've dealt with the uh, shortcomings and the challenges. And this is actually leading into a question because, you know, again, if I'm listening, I'm like, damn you know those guys know their stuff except this guy who's talking right now but those two guys know their stuff and it then invites the question well if i want to do this in my organization who do i need to do this and so i've long been a proponent that it, this doesn't happen by, happen by magic you don't buy a you know hrms and all of a sudden you have the insight you need to run your organization effectively um so Brad, I want to go back to you because we didn't uh, spend too much time there at the outset when we talked about your background. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about how you got to where you are right now, and if you can conclude as to why you founded uh, yeah, Aptology, because yeah, you've been through a journey, you could have done different things and you could have been sailing in Sweden or you actually did that. But, <laughs> you know, what, what's your inspiration for doing what you're doing right now? Yeah, so I think when you're talking about our experiences and before you were talking, you were saying we were all old, which is appropriate, basically. I did not say that. Uh, I plead innocent. I might have implied it. I've been both fortunate and grateful to have gone through a lot of different trends in the marketplace over the years and to see what drove those and see what we didn't get accomplished. And that goes back to the 80s. I was at Accenture building custom HRMS systems or implementing best of breeds before we even had ERP at that point in time. And it was all mainframe. We were just automating manual processes at that point, whether it be financial, bookkeeping, and or, or HRMS. And then, you know, people thought that I got to run development there for HRMS and financials and get into the internet focus on how do you do, you know, web-based applications. But, you know, that was a big gold rush during the Y2K. You know, everybody rose with the tide, whether it be PeopleSoft or SAP or Oracle or anybody else along the way, because everybody was on a hard race to get their systems converted before Y2K hit. Um, but during that time, you know, we were focusing on efficiency once again. We were just automating benefits. We were just automating payroll. We were just automating base HR, higher transfer termination. And then during the 2000s, I had the opportunity to go into Taleo and run products and technology there, you know, pre-IPO and, and really get to see the SaaS environment, see the opportunity there to keep your customers current because of the fact that, you know, an ERP company, they had a lot of these companies that, as their customers, but they were so customized and so many releases back, they couldn't take advantage of the new functionality, even if you built it on the on-premise solution. And so that really opened up the door to us to bypass IT and to bypass the issues and go to best of breed on ATS. And then we certainly saw the aggregation and talent management where customers once again are going, Oh no, now I got to deal with all the integration again between learning and development and performance management and ATS. And that drove all of us to look, you know, buy our neighbors or build the equivalent of our neighbor to consolidate the talent management space. And then obviously then, you know, Workday came along and finally moved the ERP into the, into the SaaS cloud-based world and, and Oracle and SAP followed suit by acquiring first and then building native solutions. Um, but during all that time, the key that I saw all along the way was the fact that, to your point earlier, we weren't doing a good job of measuring what drives a great manager. How do we measure real performance there? Because manager is such a link pen and leverage point in terms of people staying with the company or people developing within the company, people moving on to other opportunities in the company. At the same time, we really didn't do a great job on the quality of hire. We really figured out how to 
hire the wrong person faster, basically, because we didn't know what good looked like. And I'm not trying to make light of that, but the key being, it was really around, how do I make recruiting more efficient? How do I make HR more efficient? You know, as opposed to what's the best outcome for the business? And how do I measure that outcome? And then how do I work backwards to Ian's earlier point, which is if I know the outcomes, what are the questions I need to answer? And by doing that, I'm not only driving the right outcome backwards and driving the solution to deliver on that outcome, I'm also standardizing that outcome because right, right, right now, if you go into like a sales organization, if you ask a bunch of different hiring managers what they think good looks like, they're going to have different answers. Uh, and if you ask the recruiter, they're going to say, I'm just following what's on the job description. And quite frankly, when we find out, that job description doesn't really match what we find really differentiates performance in that role when you look at the actual data. And so really by figuring out what truly drives the needle and drives revenue attainment or drives innovation and in product or drives happy, satisfied customers or drives lead generation and marketing, you really have to figure out what that definition of success looks like. And then you standardize that across everybody. And that's where you can marry together the talent acquisition and the HR side with the business domain, because now you have a common language to speak to, right? What am I trying to, what how am I trying to deliver that we all benefit from? If I deliver your revenue attainment, you're going to have better engagement. You're going to have better retention. I have less backfills to do. I'm not spending all my time refilling the job I filled a year ago. Everybody wins in that scenario. So not just about the employee and the company winning. It's about all these multiple domains winning because now they have a common outcome that they're married to, that they're figuring out how to go ahead and deliver on. And I think everybody wants that. They're all struggling. They're all underwater trying to keep their head above water right now. How do I just mm -hmm. keep things moving and how do I do the next thing I'm supposed to do from a hygiene standpoint to get better? And you really need to step back and go, what's better for the company? How do we work from the front backwards to Ian's earlier point? That's really imperative, I think, basically to go ahead and get the right outcome. You know, as you're talking, it's dawning on me that the discussion that you're describing often isn't had, uh, even if there's a leadership team of HR, the HR leadership team, HRLT, and they're there talking about their processes, they're talking about what's going on in their particular silo nine out of 10 times. And again, I'm not coming in as a cynic or being harsh. I'm just talking about reality. There's certain processes that need to work. People got to get paid. You know, there's stuff that needs to be done to have this strategic discussion and understand how the dots connect. Literally, the data connects, how the logic connects, testing the hypotheses, all that. That, that takes a certain set of skills, a certain set of uh, ways of being, like awareness uh, of you know how the world might work, and and you know of course having the analytical chops to go and actually you know get it done. So you know, Ian, can you speak to your background a little bit and taking off that you know last comment because I know you have those skills in, in spades, and you know I, I know it's critical for this discipline. But you know, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, uh, it, you're you're triggering lots of thoughts, Al, as as usual. Um, I think it does come down to you know HR working in the business as opposed to working on the business, and and there is a there's a growing group, and it's certainly a, a, a coming sort of generation coming into the HR domain who are who are interested in people and less about the sort of administration and legal compliance, and are more about the what I classify as the organizational development, like how do people thrive? And what I find with a lot of those folks is they'll, they'll have a general business background that then specialized in HR, or potentially they came from marketing and kind of fell into HR. Some even come from finance and fall into HR. What I find with that population with this, like the broader 
exposure to the business is they're quite comfortable going and talking to a head of sales. And mm -hmm. so, you know, back to your question, like, how does this get started? Well, often it doesn't actually get started in HR. It actually gets started with a piece of the business going like, so if you could have 20% better population overall, what's that worth to you? Light bulbs go off, budgets start to get formulated, projects get kicked off, stuff happens. Maybe you don't get the 20%, maybe you get 30, maybe you get 15, but like this stuff happens. I mean, Brad and I, when we we're talking, you know, just when we we're getting, getting to know each other as, as businesses, we're the same exact experience, like HR, these kinds of technology projects, these kinds of ways of evolving the practice happen, tend to happen more with a business sponsor. So domain expertise, people inside, kind of good HR governance from the core HR group, but a friendly business sponsor who's equal party to, to creating the creating momentum. And we see it in our we see it in our deals, we see it in our practitioners where there's a I made this for the business with HR, as opposed to HR made this and we hope the business uses it. That that second approach we know fails most of the time. The first approach we're seeing a great results. And again, you know, Brad's connection is I'm not just measuring people for the sake of measuring them, I'm measuring them so that we impact sales so that we impact call center results. It's, it's like, it's right, right into the, so that the business does something better. So if I can play that back, HR in that scenario is most effective functioning in, a, in effect as a facilitator, as opposed to an, the owner of the process. To your point, they're not working on the business, they're working in the business as a true collaborative thinking partner, someone who actually then goes and executes on the back end is that right ian yeah that, that, that's what i'm saying they're, they're taking the people component of the business problem to the business because because often it either the business doesn't have time or is misunderstood or doesn't know what's possible but they're very willing to, to give energy and time if it's properly positioned so that you know that big piece is being able to articulate does talent that is 20 percent better make a difference to you if the answer is no then that's fine but if the answer is yes then you've got the beginnings of a, a partnership to really help shape the business and we tend yeah, to find those work better and just i'm going to kick this over to you brad because i've seen many organizations take what i would call a technology centered approach or a data centered approach thinking, okay i'm going to get this technology it's going to solve everything but there needs to be a process built around it of which hr is uniquely positioned to facilitate not only because it, in its core job, it needs to understand human and organizational behavior. It is also the case where there's privacy and security around the data. So it can't just be flying around, you know, all over the place. So yeah, Brad, your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so uh, I definitely want to echo a bunch of the things that Ian mentioned. I think a key one there is the fact that I think HR has been put in a difficult position, historically speaking, where, oh, it's people related, delegate to HR. But they don't manage these people day to day. They're not the ones driving the performance on the operational side. They're not the ones managing the talent there. But somehow they've been relegated to sort of being asked to pick the systems and implement these things. And I think you can't solve the problem unless it is a real joint venture. Is the key, you know, it's HR and marketing, HR and sales, HR and engineering. It's really figuring out how do we drive the right outcomes for the business with our people because people are the biggest asset and the best asset is to drive that outcome. And so having that conversation, understanding what really are the defining metrics that drive the business, and then how do we deliver on those metric improvements is the first conversation you have to have. And that's what we have a conversation on when we get into 
a, a discussion with a prospect of the fact that you're not just talking to sales in one example or just talking to HR. You're bringing them together within the second meeting because of the fact that it really is, how do we mutually define that outcome for the business? And it takes both parties to do that, because they're both going to be investing time, investing effort, and they're both going to get be beneficiaries of that outcome. Uh, and so it really is a mutual uh, opportunity. And, and that's come into vogue. You have to do that also because of the fact that there's so many decision makers in deals today. Sales has gotten a lot more complex. You've got a lot of people involved. You've got more legal. You've got the privacy. You've got all the procurement. You've got the various functional domains. There's a lot of players in there. And, and I think you really have to make sure they have a unified view. What do they think they're buying? Are all those people thinking they're buying the same thing or do they all have their own exclusive view on what they want to get? I, mean, I think you have to have that, that mosaic, that aggregate of what are we all going to deliver to the business? And we're going to play our part in making sure that happens as opposed to, it's just about me getting my efficiency gains in my area as opposed to looking at it, how's everybody win? How do we drive the route into the business? And whether my parts basically, I don't get as much benefit out of it, but I can help drive a lot, huge aggregate benefit of the business. That should be the outcome everybody's looking for. Is what you're describing, Brad, a key barrier to relatively low adoption? And embedded within that is, do you think the process that you described is widely uh, adopted as pervasive, or do we have a long way to go when we talk about the you know, total population of say just U.S. businesses, uh, you know, for example. I mean, I have my own opinions on this, but you, know, what are yours, Brad? Um, I think it depends upon the company. You know, I think some companies are early adopters and are basically very focused on driving those outcomes. I think others aren't yet prepared to go ahead and make that agile change. But I think it's going to come quickly. I think COVID really brought on a renewed focus on accelerating a lot of these transformations going on. People really, after they got over the, what do I do? My people are all remote. I don't even know how this is going to work. They really focus a lot on their people. It's like, how do I understand my people? How do I get my arms around my people? And how do I think about what's the new normal going to look like? We've seen a dramatic change basically in terms of people recognizing, you know, we're not going to, it's going to be a hybrid. It's not going to be the way it was before. You know, if you look at sales, for instance, you know, it's, it's all remote selling now. They went from a huge focus on field sales and a lesser focus on inside sales to everybody's selling remotely. Uh, and that's really flipped around. You know, what, what defines a great salesperson in COVID and what defines a great salesperson post-COVID based upon how they decide to redefine how they go to market. And so I think you're also seeing a bigger focus on you know, inside sales roles, SDR, BDR roles, and everything else because people are recognizing you know, the digital transformation is coming and it's coming faster than expected. Uh, and yeah. COVID was a key wind at our back to go ahead and drive that change. So I think you're going to see faster transformation than we might have said we'd expect to see, you know, 18 months ago. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Ian, your thoughts there, because, you know, yes, COVID has been a big kick in the tail in many ways. It's also been the case where um, you know, we talk about habits and organizational inertia, there's already been some kind of falling into old habits uh, because, hey, you know, I've been a leader for 30 years. This is the way I've been doing it. 
we just had this little blip and we're going to go back to, you know, kind of the normal ways of, of doing things in those functional silos. Other organizations have said, wow, this is really integral to how we need to operate, you know, moving forward. And if we're going to do this, what data and insight are we going to be looking at on an ongoing basis? And to our earlier point, that just doesn't happen by magic. You know, there that needs to be, you know, work done. So you know, how pervasive do you think this new means in which to formulate work strategy is and when i say work strategy is not only hiring and developing but really should they be in office should they be at home you know what are your thoughts there you know, do is it widely uh, adopted that we have this you know integrated governance model and how we formulate measure and manage uh, work strategy over time or do you think we still have a long way to go in most organizations i would say we still have a long way to go in most organizations what I what I anticipate is that it will be the curve at which it's changing has had a massive uptick and the pace at which it will continue to change will actually increase the uptick. So I would, as you were explaining the question, light bulbs going off kind of as you were talking there, some of the data that's flowing through is there's been a demographic bubble, the boomer generation, they've been delaying retirement up until last year. I think retirement rates are two or three times what they were. And so the millennials passed the were the, the majority in the workforce about two years ago, but that starts to take a quantum step. So the, the energy in the organization is just generally younger because there's a lot more younger people. And then they take on new leadership roles. They try things. It's just, it's natural when you're young, you try things. And we have the new experience of being able to pivot during COVID like nobody thought. You know, stuff was happening in three weeks that was would have taken three months or six months. So that, so what I don't know, and I think what's really hard to gauge is which organizations are going to hold on to that speed of decision. You know, they enjoyed it, they understood it, they collectively as a culture can keep it and use that to drive performance. What number of organizations are going to go like, oh my god, that was too much. Let's just kind of go back and. You know, build consensus and spend time pondering. It's it's going to be somewhat of a bell curve. How much is on each end? Who knows? But I think it'll become more pervasive. I think it it's it's really more of an, an emerging practice that's going to start differentiating the winners from the losers, as opposed to everybody's operating this way. I think it's a it's mm -hmm. a now there's no proof point that running an organization from an agile perspective works. I don't see everybody running to adopt it because it takes a bit more. It takes a different set of habits. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll we'll see more organizations using it. I think we'll see more organizations, you know, working to build that muscle. And so we'll become uh, much more of a habit. But at the, yeah. we're really at the point of that starting to form as opposed to, hey, everybody's doing this. Um, if I could jump in real fast too on that, Ian, those are great points. You know, the millennial shift. I think another shift that's going to come and it's going to force the flip as well, basically, is the fact that people are going to quickly see that they're at a competitive disadvantage if they're not making these changes, basically. And I think that's going to be a massive change from the sea level on down of like, boy, we're behind. We need to get a move on. Now, obviously, you don't do everything overnight. And it's you know, it's an agile approach where you can, you, you crawl, walk, and run. Um, but I think you'll see a huge push on that and not that I have to do some future. And that'll, that'll be a big pressure point to drive adoption, I think, uh, and to drive penetration within a company. Yeah, I 100% I agree with both of what you said. I, I believe the opportunity cost is not only in productivity, it's in well-being, 
it's in diversity and feelings of inclusion, uh, pay equity. I mean, all these topics, which are high priorities, not only for CHROs, but for you know, boards and uh, certainly C-level um, um, staff. It's like, how do you move the needle when you don't know where the needle is or what trend you know it's heading or the drivers of that needle you know so it's, it's very simple for us because we're not only drinking the kool-aid we're making the kool-aid so you know we'll call that out but at the same time you know if we're jumping up and down and say gosh you know we not only need the data and systems to you know capture and analyze this data but we need the processes by which this insight to get adopted and turn action you know being taken so you know ian i'm going to toss this over to you and i want to focus um, a minute if you would entertain me on diversity and inclusion uh, because that obviously is a huge topic it's not going to go away nor should it and so Many, however, many organizations have had a chief diversity officer for 20 years, been under-resourced, uh, you know, they've been a primary influencer, but now they're integral to how these talent strategies are being formulated. They need data to understand historical dynamics and need to be able to set goals and actually go out and achieve those goals. So can you just speak to your hope in this particular arena of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how, sure. you know, Vizier and other solutions are, I would say, and this is my own words, necessary, not nice as to have, but essential to actually tackling these tough problems. Totally. A couple of things you said just around the, the evidence for the change, like there's, there's a belief, but beginning of this year, Element put out research on buying behavior. Buyers, 60% of buyers will buy based on alignment of social justice. It used to be 47%, it now up to 60%. So any brand out there that has a public profile need un, has to understand that their social justice stance will affect their revenue. And that's, you know, it's flipped from the wrong side of 50 to the, the right side of 50. Um, additionally, the SEC regulations came in. Like this is all 2020, so forget COVID. These are yeah. major, major effects in their own right. Um, the SEC disclosure rules come in. All the reporting I'm seeing is that diversity statistics are, are core in there because you, you start looking at, well, my diversity perspective, inclusion perspective can actually affect my revenue. The SEC is asking me to disclose on things that could affect revenue that relate to people. Like it, it's diversity ceased to be a nice to have. Right. It, it's the kind of thing that uh, CalPERS, a, a large investment group, BlackRock, large investment groups, they're going to want to understand not just what's your big round number for diversity where where are you know black women in leadership roles what's the succession pipeline look like how is the mobility of that population happening it's way beyond the kind of end state reporting that you can pull out from an hrs it is into the detail of trend and change and so that you can forecast and move towards a future goal and make statements on it as opposed to simply like yeah we we, we ship the numbers we're fine we forget about it for another year like it's really massive step change in, in the urgency and the attention. And we're even finding people coming to us because their board have asked them to get on top of this because their board know they're on the hook for the SEC commentary. So yeah. it, it's, it's, it is, I mean, you put it well, Al, it's, it's not a nice to have. This, this should, should have been at the heart of business and 
you know, the things are moving around business have, have, have put it there firmly for sure. Well, you know, that, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, Brad, I want to toss the same question over to you. And I, I'd like you to, if you would, because I know Aptology actually gets at this problem as well, uh, you know, in highlighting opportunities and, and so forth. So yeah, without going further, you know, Brad, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so um, we built our platform at the beginning, basically going after this is one of the key pillars. It wasn't just performance and engagement and attrition. It was really going after, you know, how do you drive diversity? And that's that's another solution. You need to have that in your organization. It's like part of your balance sheet today. As basically to Ian's point, you have, it's going to be measured. It's going to be illuminated. And quite frankly, if you don't deal with it, you're going to be at a disadvantage against your competition as a business. Forget the doing the right thing. Uh, from a business standpoint, you're going to be disadvantaged. And so when we built this, we really looked at the fact that, you know, if you look at behavior and, and we, we did, we made sure we tested this exhaustively to make sure there was no disadvantaging or bias based upon, you know, gender, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic level, anything else, basically. And behavior doesn't really bias on that. Basically, you have to make sure you test it. And we do massive testing there. We do massive testing with all of our AI work to make sure we're driving out any bias and we're getting bias free because of the fact that at the end of the day, um, people are investing in the diversity offices and everything else. And they're putting a lot of investment in, but they're not, they're not getting the quick turnaround they hope they would get. It's not completely catching on in the organizations. You've got a lot of unconscious bias out there at the management level and others basically, or even just looking at what school somebody went to or what company do they come from and or what's on their resume. And so, uh, our goal is to really get rid of that unconscious bias and drive a standard. We're trying to find people that will succeed in the role regardless of their background. And by getting them in, obviously, you've, you've increased your sourcing pool, basically. And at the same time, this is why we want you to survey everybody in the company, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people like women looking at management positions. They may not apply for positions. They may think they're not going to get it or something like that. So if we can illuminate who's got a great shot early on, and those people can be identified and, and and fostered and developed is they you drive a much better outcome from a diversity standpoint, but you also drive a better holistic outcome for the company and for every employee in the company. And so the key being that's a huge lever companies need to be looking at both for the right reasons as well as for just pure business reasons. Uh, and so that's foundational to us uh, when we look at the marketplace. You have to uh, focus on that to remove all the inherent bias that exists today. Yeah, just to translate that into my very simple language because I've long put forth that we as human beings after the basics want to be seen we want to be heard and we want to be empowered and so what I'm hearing you say Brad is that you're doing just that it's like hey I am here you're listening to me and you're empowering me to go and have the professional experiences the learning experiences to get to that next level and now it's not just you know, an internal talent marketplace that's esoteric, it's actually tangible. And it, you know, the probability that it drives the desired outcomes is, is heightened. And to your point, both of you made, you know, we have a responsibility as leaders to create a culture that enables this internal mobility upwards and not suppressing talent. And so you know, particularly as we come out of COVID, whatever that means, there's always there's a a lot of articles and there's research that shows that there's a lot of high value talent with itchy feet. It's like, hey, you know, I've got, you know, as the economy starts to spin up, if my organization hasn't treated me well or hasn't shifted, then I got, I'm going to have options. 
and that's already prevalent here in the Bay Area. So, you know, you know I want to kick it over to you because we have time for a couple few more questions. And I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, ask this because you and I have known each other for a number of years, and we have been pretty lock and step in the fact that we have to think about how we're going to bring this data together over time because there's acquisitions there's different buying decisions being made over time so the idea that it given all its priorities is going to magically prioritize hr data and all of a sudden you know we're going to have this magical database that's out going to pop the answer and you and i've heard it a number of times over the years so my pointed question is this if you're coaching an hr chro or a head of people analytics or head of talent or, or or somebody who is responsible for the culture and talent strategy you know why is having a tool like vizier essential and might sound self-serving and it is but what i will say is this it is absolutely essential that there be a tool like vizier in place and there it's it, it can't it's not going to happen you know otherwise so it can, can you speak to that from your perspective please absolutely um it speaks to a lot of what people assume again a, a kind of common perception of analytics is that it's an in-state activity we do a bunch of stuff, we produce some data, we then look at the data to see if it works. That, that was the reporting world. And again, that is a habit from the past. Like we did a lot of hiring, we came to the hiring. Truly, if we're gonna get the strategies right, you've heard the complexity of the world we're living in just through the conversation we've had. So how do you formulate strategy if you don't have data? Like I don't know how anybody can intelligibly formulate a people strategy today without some data about who do we have and where do they work and what do they work before? What do they want to do? What can they do? I mean, we're, we're just surrounded by organizations who are questing for that information and, and it's not slowing down and it's not changing. So if you actually want to be strategic in HR, the, the only way you, you get there is to actually source the data first, understand those trends and changes so that when you make a strategy, it's focused. It, it's not, well, let's just do this for everybody and hope some of it sticks. Uh, it's not, well, let's just do what everybody else did because it worked for them, it'll work for us. Like we know those don't work. So the only way to truly actually, from my mind, to execute HR strategically is to bring the data first, have it inform what you do, have it inform where you do it, who you do it with, so that you have a higher chance of success. Your resources are really well positioned and you can then track it through. And then it just becomes a cycle. Again, yep. we're moving away from this. I think even finance is moving away from this annual plan with annual budgets with annual pieces to something that's far more short term. So, you know, having finance make an annual plan and then fitting your HR work to it, we're just not going to be living in that kind of staid world. So again, it's clear I'm, I'm passionate about the space and have been for a while. So clearly I see this, but I, I I don't know how people are formulating strategy without having the data first. And I, I fear what comes from that when you do. And, and just to be clear too, and, and forgive me, I, Stacey Harris is the author of the study. I, I think it's Sierra Steeter still, but I might be messing up the, the name of the organization. But I think it was, um, if a company has over 10,000 employees, they have an average of 15 HR systems within yeah. 
better. And so if that's the case, you know, all those 15 systems have a dashboard and they have an analytic analytics value proposition and, oh, give me your data and we can all stage it in here, but it's not that simple. <laughs> and, you know, it's, and it's I don't not, have to tell you how, <laughs> no. you know, to, to deal with hierarchies, you know, different types of data sets, you know, having the Rosetta Stone of the employee ID and keeping anonymity. I mean, all that stuff can make someone's, you know, mind just go numb. So yeah. it takes work and it takes thoughtfulness. And I'm going to kick this over to you, Brad, because I know you've been in the HR tech space in one form or another for you know 20 plus years, and you've wrestled with this problem. It's the case that if we don't think systematically, if we don't think not only about the data and bringing it together and being able to analyze it, what you're doing, correct me if I'm wrong, in aptology, it's not only data for data's sake, it's appropriate data to answer the questions leaders want or, or need to know. So Brad, can you give your thoughts on, okay, you're coaching a CHRO or, or someone like him or her, you know, what is your advice, not only to get started, because many would say, oh yeah, we're doing that, we're doing that, but really to take it to the next level and get to this agile place where you can be responsive to the needs of the organization and you'll be efficient and effective, you know, with your budget and, and with your people. Yeah, I think I think it starts with one thing, which is I've talked to a lot of CHROs, and I think a lot of them are very strategic these days, basically, and they are talking to the business. They're having these conversations every day with the head of sales and the CEO, and where are we pivoting? Do we have the right people for tomorrow? I think the challenge is when you go down the organization, people are process-oriented, basically, and so I think you know it's harder to move some of those pillars as quickly as you'd like. But I think when it gets back to your point about having that many HR systems, the fundamental issue for me is Myself as an operational manager or leader, I'm not going to go into 15 systems. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to use all those. And quite frankly, I think you've seen less than adequate adoption of people going into HR systems to answer the key questions to drive the business because that's not where their data resides they want to have. Is the key, right? They need to have the data pulled out of there and, and be able to consolidate that information. And by the point we had earlier, drive the right outcomes, ask the right questions. And then have it be actionable analytics, where now I can trigger the transactions behind the scenes. So what do I want to trigger in HR system one versus two versus three? But I still need those transactions, right? I still need to facilitate those, but I need to have a better abstract to go ahead and see the information together, where I am going to go in there and daily go, what are my top of mind questions do I have to answer today? What are the outcomes I'm trying to drive right now? And then which actions do I take as a consequence of looking at that data quickly? And so I think you're going to see a lot more focus in the future of applications being a lot more headless. It's the key where the fact is, you know, they're providing the backbone and the information. They're not necessarily where I'm going to go. I'm not going to go to five different BI platforms and in five different solutions to natively to do my transactions. I want to have that pulled up front and consolidate that. So I want to drive and, and drive the our armada and then have a bunch of behind the scenes fulfilled uh, those decisions along the way. So I think you're going to see quite a bit of an evolution in that direction uh, mm -hmm. in the short term. And I would recommend HR users look at recognizing that to figure out how do I get that consolidated view first, even if it's not great at first, if it's not pretty, but having the data there and the right data is, the, is a starting point for that. How do I answer the questions that matter to each of my constituents uh, and get that moving? It doesn't have to be pretty, basically, but it has to be effective. Uh, yeah. And then you can work on how do you make and improve upon that over time. Yeah, no, well said. And that's actually a great segue into um, one of my final questions here. And I'll toss it over to you, Ian, because when we talk about 
data transparency and data mobility, it, it speaks to what you all have kicked off there at Azir with the People Intelligence Alliance. Can you speak from your perspective, the goals of the People Intelligence Alliance? And for those who don't know what it is, can you just introduce uh, it a bit? Yeah, it's a recognition across a series of vendors who, who really want to see people data used, but used well and used in a way that, that honors the person that helps the business to, to resolve some of the perceived challenges that would sit with an individual that's going for, for best in class. And so as a set of vendors, we are you know, we're sharing knowledge, we're sharing understanding of each other's technology, we're sharing the data structures on the back end so that the movement of data becomes seamless, easy. The, the knowledge is there and the support is there. I mean, the simple examples are, you know, we show up with a, a joint client of Aptology or some of our other partners. They say, we want to work together. It's like, great. Well, we get on the phone, we solve, we work out what works. We resolve how to make that work between our two technologies. I mean, we're, as, we, as we grow, you know, more of us are getting ahead of that. So you don't even have to get us on the phone. We kind of worked it out before we even start. Again, we've got some specific deals going on where, you know, two pieces of PIA are being purchased at the same time. They already talk to each other. The client doesn't have to think about it. Uh, and so there's, there's, a, there's an element of that understanding about data mobility. And then there's, there's the broader piece of making sure that um, the data is used well. And so mm -hmm. sharing thought leadership, participating in these kinds of discussions so that we can help people access knowledge and insight about what's possible, how do I get it done? How do I follow the paths that have been you know, built by others and, and get myself to success quickly? And just making that really available and, and spreading that, that sort of Spreading that knowledge is a key part of it as well. Yeah, that, yeah, love it because yeah, I you know, there's been a few cycles of this which I know you both appreciate where you know a certain vendor wanted to be all things to everybody and it just didn't work. And then there's middleware and there's you know try and talk to you know there's, you know ETL and tools and there's just all this stuff you know flying around all over the place. Uh, you know, if there's more openness from the get-go and a common set of practices and the means in which technologies can communicate and, you know, share their APIs and have data flow would be much, uh, much better and more efficient for everybody. And you know, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about the ethics and security <laughs> on another talk, talk uh, but for now, you know, there's a balance between the data flow and also the constraints. So I'll just call that out. Um, you know, Brad, as we start to wrap up here, you know, if you have any comments on, you know, the benefits of data transparency and, and data mobility, and also if you would just share a little bit as we start to wrap here about Aptology and how people can learn more about it and you. Yeah. So just piggybacking on what Ian said, I think, you know, when I look at what this year is doing and and with the Alliance, it's really, it's like we're building a quilt together, right? Uh, and everybody's got their quilt pieces and really the outcome is that quilt's not a quilt until you put it all together. And nobody's, nobody's buying a piece of a quilt. They wanna buy the whole thing and be thinking, they wanna have somebody predefine what that looks like. They wanna predefine what the outcomes are I'm looking for. What questions am I answering be thinking along the way rather than I'm being in a consulting project every time I go ahead and aggregate systems. And so I think that's a huge step change. And back to your point, Al, no one vendor is gonna deliver everything. You know, We don't presume that we're gonna solve all the problems and solve all the issues, uh, and nor do we believe anybody else is going to. It's really gonna take a coalition of companies that 
all have the same end goal and mindset in mind to go ahead and, and work towards driving faster uh, aggregation of information and also fact, fast, faster uh, transformation and integration of the information. Uh, and then at the same time, making sure that they're, they're protecting the data. You know, that's obviously privacy is paramount to this. So people have to trust that this information, which is very proprietary, is not going to be uh, it'll be exposed in any way where they're going to be concerned about this. And so, um, but you've got a lot of great companies out there that know what they're doing. They've, they've, they've all wrestled with all these issues, uh, but their vision is bigger than their ability to deliver on their own. And I think that's what people recognize they need to work together uh, and find like-minded companies and also find the best of breed companies that they think should be put together so that they're not the customer in the position of having to figure out which one's best of breed I don't even know the difference between these companies because I'm looking at the marketing. It all sounds good. It sounds like you all do the same thing. Right. And, and right. the point is, unless you're really super technical and get underneath the surface and have the time, you can't figure out the difference. And so I think you know having us sort of self-select, uh, like we're working with Vizier and others, uh, that's really going to do a huge service to the customer on the buy-in side. They don't have to wade through that. And every customer doing the same thing repeatedly, we have to take that load off of them. Uh, and make sure we're giving them a real solution that they can implement in a timely manner and drive real outcomes versus the historical ones where I got a promise of an ROI, it's a massive implementation. And I never quite realized what I thought I was gonna get with all that spend and all that time and effort, right? Um, right. The kinds of things we're talking about are quick wins uh, that you can get basically they have huge differential outcomes for the business. They're very material monetarily uh, if you look at some of the things that this is doing, the things we're doing, it's massive dollars that you can drive into your out of your organization or into your organization if you look at revenue in a relatively short period of time. And so if you want to learn more about optology, certainly uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to have you connect with me there. And then certainly at our website, www.optology.com, great place to find out about how our solution works, uh, what we provide for our customers and the kinds of things you could expect if you work with us in the future. Outstanding. And uh, Ian, bring us home with a little bit about, uh, you know, how they can, a listener can learn about you and uh, Vizier. So Vizier, the website is a great place to go. We, we recently ran Outsmart, which is a, was an on-demand conference really, really high attendance. It's still open for on-demand. We have some fantastic speakers, you know, talking about the space and, and kind of way to go. And then myself, uh, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Um, I run a Thursday debate around questions about people analytics, and well, they're always posed as a you know opposing views of what's the right way to go. So, find me. There's now about five months of history on those once every week, so it actually becomes quite an instructive way to to understand you know what do how do people see the practice and what is common and what's not common. So you know, dig in there, surface some of those old posts. Um, there's some really quality information there about how to start working your way into being successful at people on X and I, I love to share what we know. So thank you. Well, I certainly recommend it. And I certainly appreciate both of you for sharing today. Thank you for doing what you do and being who you are and uh, hope to see you in person uh, before too long. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the conversation. I really enjoyed it. All yeah, right. Likewise. All. all right. You be well. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.